Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Today we're joined by Chris Mason, BBC journalist and host for BrexitCast, now Newscast, and the BBC Radio 4 show, Any Questions? Chris is a Yorkshireman and, most importantly, a geography graduate. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Straight off, as I'm currently in the county, uh, is Yorkshire really God's own country? Oh, without any question. I think that is beyond, uh, you know, academic discussion now and has been well and truly resolved in the literature over many centuries. Um, I'm sure every peer reviewer would acknowledge that uh, you couldn't possibly challenge that as, as an established incontrovertible fact. Could you tell anyone who's listening and doesn't know uh, a bit about you and your background, who you are and uh, what do you do? Yeah, so I am a political journalist. I always wanted to be a reporter when I was growing up in Grassington in the Yorkshire Dales. Always dreamed of being a news reporter, really. It was as simple as that, or it was as either as narrow-minded or as single-minded, depending on your prejudice, as that. Never wanted to do anything else. But grew up in an environment where I was surrounded by the kind of beauty of the of the Yorkshire Dales, and also had had in two parents who were primary school teachers, two geography coordinators at their respective primary schools, and so whenever we were out and about in the Yorkshire Dales, no, you know, Sunday afternoon ramble would be complete without explanations from the age of you know four onwards or whatever about how this was a glacial valley or that was a meander in a river or that was a sedimentary rock or that was a linear village in other words the geographical education started remarkably young I became something of an obsessive as a teenager with meanders uh, and doing various projects about what I le- later learned was kind of fluvial geomorphology and at a sort of GCSE and A level level I could just about do it and be fascinated by it. By the time I got to university, such things were way beyond my mathematical comprehension and I kind of leaned towards human geography uh, instead. But yeah, I always wanted to be a a journalist. I always wanted to be a reporter. I kind of grew up reading newspapers, listening to the radio, watching television news, Trevor MacDonald on the ITN, News at 10 back in the 1990s. Uh, I was obsessed with and I still am with radio and the power of radio and that one-on-one communication that you have which is then magnified in this era of the of the podcast um and yeah ended up doing geography at university partly because of as I say that that thing that had kicked in when I was aged four and beyond with my parents and uh it's sort of big hulking amorphous discipline that it is it saw me through my three years at university and then on I went to be a reporter been at the BBC since 2002 um, just started in the last year presenting any questions on Radio 4, which is one of the privileges of my professional life. And then Brexit cast and newscast, as you mentioned, uh, another thing that I do alongside being a political correspondent. It's the curse of having geography teachers as parents, I guess, that you're told about every single landscape and process <laughs> and meaning in the natural world. It was. I mean, I think if you are the children of teachers, particularly primary school teachers, then you know, there's no such thing as a school holiday because, my goodness, the lessons carry on in a nice way, though, and in a way that opens your eyes and ears and brain, if you like, to the world because you're all off. You're always asking questions and nothing is boring. If, if an explanation is offered as to how it got there, why it got there, who built it, how, what formed it, 
how it's changed, whether it's changed, all those kind of questions that you can ask around uh, around the kind of landscape that you grow up in. And, you know, the rolling and sometimes not so rolling, very steep hills of the Yorkshire Dales afford you that kind of perspective on both the natural and the human world that perhaps in flatter environments you don't get quite the same perspective of. Because when you stand on the top of a stop at the top of a valley and look down into two dales sometimes you can see the the RAF tornadoes on their uh, practice bombing raids below you in the valley as well as seeing the the physical and human geographical uh, sort of entities below you whether that as I say be the meandering river wharf or the uh, the village of Starbottom in Wharfdale or whatever it might be you know you can see the, the sort of natural and the human world interacting right in front of you your eyes and I think you know in that sense that did leave quite a legacy and my goodness I can't wait to get back to Yorkshire in a few weeks I've never gone longer without visiting the promised land uh, courtesy of this horrendous pandemic and I can't uh, just the merely describing those those dales to you now is my mind is my mind is the theatre of the mind is wandering uh, back to the high hills can't wait to get back there in a few weeks. I bet it's making you yearn for the wolds. Um, so that has led you into a life of journalism. Um, it seems like a very sleep-deprived lifestyle. <laughs> Last week, I saw that you had tweeted that you had a 3.27 alarm call for BBC Breakfast. Is, is that true? Yeah, it is true. Yeah. So um, the nature of broadcast journalism is shift work. Um, that's just a inescapable reality not least because uh, whilst obviously in this era of time shifting people can consume their their news like their music like their films like whatever it might be at a time of their convenience that the time that people tend to want to consume news is either first thing in the morning or last thing at night and you have to be there to deliver it so shift work is inevitable when i'm presenting on bbc breakfast which is another incredible privilege um that program is on the air at six in the morning. So yeah, I get up when I do that at just before half past three. I'm in the newsroom at just after four o'clock and on the air at six o'clock. So yeah, you know, and those kind of shifts are typical when I'm reporting for that program and for other morning programs, I'm up a little bit later at about 4.30. There's a big difference, by the way, between 3.30 and 4.30. 3.30 is definitively, incontrovertibly, the middle of the night. 4.30, particularly at this time of year, as we record in July, it's almost getting light. Actually, I've noticed the, I hate to say this, but I've noticed that the, the, the days are creeping back on us as we head back down the hill towards winter. It doesn't get light quite as early as it did a month ago. Um, but there is that at least beginnings of the sense of morning by half four, quarter to five. And then equally at the other end of a, a week, I can be on late shifts as I was the other night where you're crawling into bed at, you know, two o'clock in the morning at the end of a late shift. Shift work in many ways, not the healthiest existence, but it's it's part of, it's like a sailor complaining about the sea. It's an inevitability of the job. And I suspect if I did a quote unquote proper job that involves a conventional working pattern as much as occasionally I crave that, I think after 20 years of doing anything other than that, it would probably drive me a bit crackers. That's so interesting to hear about your, your daily routine. There's, there I am feeling sorry for myself at six or seven o'clock in the morning and you've done three or four hours worth of work. Now, online, there have been many lovely things said about you. Uh, one jumped out at me in particular, Chris, that you have a diverse and humorous range of interests beyond the political scene. Do you mind <laughs> if I ask, what do you do in your spare time to warrant such an accolade? Well, it's a wonderful accolade that. I'm not sure I'm deserving of it. I think it's probably a... a um, 
an, an over-interpretation of a tendency to tweet about things other than politics. Uh, so, well, things like, for instance, my alarm clock that you noticed uh, the other day or tweeting about football or tweeting about sort of life in uh, general. I, I, I mean, you know, people often people in politics always talk about the value of people having a hinterland. In other words, not just obsessing about uh, about politics. I don't think I've necessarily got a particularly vast uh, hinterlands beyond the normal stuff of um, a, a wife and two kids and trying to slot that in around working weird and wonderful hours and having an 18-month-old son whose sleeping patterns are even more unorthodox than my own. Um, so in in that, in that sense, I'm not sure I'm entirely deserving of that description. But I do think as a reporter, I've always thought this, and I think it's particularly the case in, in this era, you have to be uh, very much, and we all are, by the way, but sometimes broadcasting can flatten people. Um, you have to be and should be a, a three-dimensional, fully paid-up member of the human race and sound uh, normal and sound rounded and be willing to talk about stuff beyond merely what you're reporting on in any given moment. I think traditionally reporters were very stiff and sort of appeared on screen like this leather coat hanger in the back of their jacket and talked in a very stilted in uh, almost inevitably received pronunciation kind of way. I'd have never succeeded in broadcasting a generation ago. Um, and I think it's a very different era now. And I think part of that is about being human and, uh, and you know, showing the world your, your foibles and your interests beyond the narrow nature of what inevitably you're broadcasting about on any on any given day. So if that's what that delightful tweeter was referring to, I'm quite happy to swallow the compliments, even if it was probably a little overstated. <laughs> You describe yourself as an outsider's insider in in Westminster in your political career. Um, Mm. What does that mean? I think it means remembering that as a reporter, you are an outsider and you are an advocate for the listener, the viewer, the reader who is an outsider. And I think what it means is that when you work somewhere like Westminster, you have a job of interpretation because of the inevitable nature of the kind of language and history and conventions of Westminster, much of which are baffling, you know, the right honourable gentleman and all that kind of nonsense. And you've got to strip all that back and communicate in a way that makes sense to, you know, Jeff in Barnsley and Miranda in Dundee, because you're talking to them, you are working for them, and you are seeking answers for them. So being the outsider is recognising that that is why you are there. Now, the conflict in journalism, particularly in specialist journalism like politics, is that in order to be a useful um, conduit of news to that listener or viewer or reader in Dundee or wherever it might be, you have to know what you're talking about and you have to get to know and understand the motivations and outlooks and beliefs and instincts of the people at the heart of government and the heart of the opposition parties. And I think the danger is the better that you get to know them and the longer you spend at Westminster. Yes, the better you'll understand how things work, but the danger is the more detached you'll become from the people that you're in the business of communicating to. And if you become detached from them, you will fail to communicate to them properly because you'll start assuming knowledge, you'll start using language that they're not familiar with, you'll fail to explain, you know, the A and the B that led to the C, and you will therefore no longer be a, in my view, decent broadcast journalist. So you have absolutely always got to be the outsider and revere being the outsider. If you aspire to be an insider, there's nothing wrong with that. It's an entirely laudable career choice to want to be in government or aspire to be in government and to sign up to a political party and and, and all the rest of it. But 
Um, I don't. I don't. I've never wanted to do that. As I say, I, I entirely respect people who do, but I've never wanted to do that. So I, I, I'm never aspiring to be an insider. I always know I will be the outsider. I always know that my knowledge of what's going on on the inside will be imperfect. As a result of that, you try and find out as much as you can and all the rest of it, but it will always be imperfect because the inevitable nature of government or opposition is that they're not going to share every secret of their strategy or their approach or their instinct. So it's about always remembering you are the outsider working on behalf of the audience. That's what that means. And you seem to achieve that through your, your Twitter platform. You're, you're a big user of Twitter. You have 67,000 tweets <laughs> to, your, to your account. Uh, do you see this platform as a mm. shortcut, uh, as quicksand? Is it a constant storm for you? Or do you have another adjective to describe it? Uh, it's all of the above, I think. Yeah, I think it's all of the above. 67,000 tweets. Is it? That's a de- oh, dear. Facts never lie, and that's a pretty depressing fact. Yeah. So I was lured towards Twitter about 10 or 11 years ago uh, as a way of kind of, this sounds terrible because it makes me sound like some sort of horrendous apprentice candidate, but as a kind of brand builder for me, really, because at the time I was a, I was more junior and, and uh, sort of less well-known in my, in my field and all the rest of it, and it seemed like a useful way of, of building a brand. And it was also a fascinating kind of democratizing platform in which you could talk directly to the audience i have to say in more recent years it has become increasingly toxic in my view and the other danger of it which i've definitely been a kind of victim of is that it's addictive you know i've got the app on a shortcut on my phone and when i was on shared parental leave last summer i promised my wife i would delete it from my phone because otherwise i'd just find myself being drawn towards it for no good reason i don't know if it's those little bursts of dopamine or whatever it's called that you get when somebody's liked your tweet or whatever i mean it sounds pathetic when you say it like that but i think that's the kind of effect it has on the human brain and it's certainly i've never encountered any kind of thankfully addiction before in my life but i do hold my hand up to being addicted to twitter and i'm not convinced it's a good idea or a good use of my time and you get sucked into sort of vortexes of argument with people you you don't know and and are anonymous and all the rest of it um i think ultimately it's a professional tool that i can't live without but I'm increasingly of the view that it's perhaps not quite the place I should spend as much time as perhaps I as perhaps I do. Mm. On on the point of Twitter, uh, it's announced recently uh, that all employees are going to be working from home rather than at their HQ. Um, what do you anticipate as the geography of future work, um, either for the BBC, for yourself, in general, for society? It's fascinating, isn't it? I think it's really fascinating. You know, if I was back, you know, contemplating an undergraduate uh, dissertation or whatever, you know, you you begin to think, oh, now this is an interesting area to explore. You know, could you see the revival of local high streets at the expense of our big city high streets if suddenly far more people are working from home and going for their sandwich, you know, down the road from the house as opposed to at Pret-a-Manger down the road from the office or whatever? Um I think, I mean, I don't know is the honest answer to your question, but I think there's a big difference between a situation where everyone or most people in a workplace are working remotely and the likely future where perhaps the centre of gravity will tilt back towards a workplace and then suddenly will those working from home feel like they are out of it a little bit. It's all very well if you know that nobody is sharing a water cooler moment because no one's used the water cooler for three months. Quite something if you're sat in your back bedroom and you rather suspect you're being plotted against by those who have actually decided to return to the 
physical workplace. Now, my experience of the whole lockdown has been different for many because for most of it, save for a fortnight when I was in domestic quarantine at the beginning because my son got some symptoms, apart from that two weeks where I did work from home and found it um, incredibly frustrating, to be quite frank, the rest of the time I have been going in to work because the nature of the nature of broadcasting is that it's infinitely more reliable and quicker and uh, you basically can do a much easier and better job if you are in there. I felt like a bit of a fraud being uh, described as a quote-unquote key worker and therefore sitting on the list with infinitely more key workers like firemen and uh, ICU doctors and all the rest of it. And there was me, you know, recording the news. Um, but actually, you know, jokes aside, that did feel even more important than usual in the in the in the middle of the the, the sort of worst bit of the of the uh, lockdown. But yeah, overall, it'll be very interesting, won't it, to see how how this shifts our uh, our outlook and the geography of of work uh, and the intersection of the sort of home and work experience. It became, didn't it, something of a thing a couple of years ago for people to bemoan the bleeding of your work life into your home life because you'd be sat on the sofa in the evening and you'd be replying to an email from your boss and isn't it annoying that these phones mean that you're never away from work well actually I think we've discovered in the last few months that whilst there is a physical distance a geography between your workplace and your home life you can to a greater or lesser extent do one in one location i.e home at home and work at work and when you are working entirely from home those two things bleed into each other entirely and certainly my experience of the only two weeks I did my goodness nothing compared with most was that I couldn't help but feel that I wasn't doing a particularly good job of either my domestic or my professional responsibilities when the front room was simultaneously the domestic lounge with the telly and the children's toys and indeed my little broadcast newsroom i'm not sure it served either purpose or either function particularly well for those two weeks if i'm honest why is geography a good subject to take on to university i think it's um the intriguing thing you know about geography and i did find this a frustration actually at, at various points at university but i think it's probably also its biggest selling point is that in what other discipline could you walk into a department of you know whatever that discipline is and discover as i did that next to each other on a corridor of various professors and lecturers was an oceanographer and a medieval historian. I remember it really strikingly, uh, that there they were next to each other, whilst both sitting under this rather broad brolly called geography. And of course, there are geographical elements to sort of mapping an ocean floor, just as there are to exploring village formations in goodness knows when, way back in the midst of time now i did occasionally as i say wrestle with the difficulty of that because i thought well what what you know what actually does unite them and and frankly i think sometimes the answer is not a lot other than that sense but then this is the core element of geography isn't it about about space and relation to one another in in terms of place and space and those sort of big weighty geographical concepts but to answer the question i think actually at an undergrad level the the joy of it is that there's something for everyone. So if, like me, you were inspired by your parents looking down into that valley in the Yorkshire Dales, but then you discover that physical geography requires an acumen for mathematics that your B in GCSE math proves that you have a limitation for, then, hey, hey, presto, you can branch off into 
human geography and into things that you know will be relevant to your professional career. So I knew I was going to be working in current affairs. So while the post-Soviet states in transition, that was very current, remains very current uh, as a live issue. Same with the AIDS pandemic and plenty of other things that I was able to do by the time I could specialise a little towards the tail end of my degree. So I think the fact that it is this amorphous, quite hard to nail down discipline where the oceanographer and the medieval historian share a corridor and a tea and a biscuit box whilst having interests that are, to put it gently, some distance apart, uh, is the, the essence and the appeal of it, really. And that, of course, might manifest in graphics, data visualisation and, and the use of GIS, I guess, in, in journalism. Yeah, oh, totally. And, and you know, no, no better illustration of that in a sort of popular sense than on an election night when you have somebody like Jeremy Vine sort of dancing around like a lunatic on some map of the political, the, the, the reshaping political geography of the UK as demonstrated by the votes of millions of people in ballot boxes just a matter of hours before. So, yeah, that sense of uh, the increasing power and use of data in journalism and the capacity to to map it and visually represent it uh, is increasingly important. And I think it actually, as a result of, you know, the, the consumption of journalism on smartphones and then also the sort of increasing power of computing when it comes to visualisation of particularly sort of geographically based data on the screen and on mobile uh, makes exploring that in a way that is useful to the lay viewer uh, much easier than it's ever been it's actually it's one of my one of my one of my ambitions one day to spring around on that map uh, in a in a virtual geographical world doing the whole changing geography political geography of the uk uh, who knows if i'll ever get a crack at doing that but uh, yeah that's a that's on the the the, the still lengthy uh, unticked ambition box as a geography graduate, uh, you trained as a journalist with a diploma from City University. Uh, what else did you do to prepare, prepare for such a prestigious media career? Well, so whilst I was at university, alongside the geography stuff, some of which, by the way, sticks very much in the memory, uh, a guy called Andy Cliff, who was the guy who interviewed me for my university place, who devoted his entire career to the geography of pandemics. Uh, you know, no more live a topic than than the one he's spent a career looking at. Um, and, and I did a module at the, in my final year about the geography of the AIDS pandemic, for, you know, very different in, in its um, uh, in its manifestation in many ways than than the current coronavirus. But in, in, in terms of the kind of geography of it and the impact it had on different sectors of the population and all the rest of it, there's some sort of definite parallels from my reading of of 20 years ago. But to answer your question, I mean, because I knew before I started studying geography as an undergrad that I wanted to be a journalist at the end of it, um, as as important to me as, you know, reading Manuel Castells or Francis Fukuyama or whoever it might have been, David Harvey, during my undergraduate years was basically ratcheting up the media experience, student media experience, because it's a passion-led industry as journalism and they are as interested in your demonstrable enthusiasm for a career in that direction when you leave university as they are in you know what you've studied and your more formal academic record so student newspapers student radio student television I did all of those and I did regard them as being as important certainly prior to my last year as important as 
the formal work side of things because I knew that it was those things on my CV and that demonstrable experience that was going to give me the best chance of getting onto a postgrad course. But most importantly, the thing I really craved was getting a traineeship with either one of the broadcasters or of the, one of the newspapers, A, because it would be a way in and B, because it would pay the course fees of the postgraduate course. And I got on a traineeship at ITN um, and then went to City University there about half a mile apart in uh, central London. And yeah, that's where it all started sort of professionally, journalistically, a couple of weeks after 9-11. So I had spent my last year at university reading things like I say, like Francis Fukuyama's The End of History. Then 9-11 happened, which put something of a hole in that particular thesis. And a week after that, I started at City University and then Grays Inn Road, the uh, headquarters of ITN in autumn 2001. And uh, crikey, nearly 20 years ago. You mentioned Francis Fukuyama there um, and a couple of other texts. Um, Do you have a favourite unit or topic in geography that you've carried through from your studies? Geopolitics, I hope. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Geopolitics. So um, I uh, remain fascinated uh, by issues surrounding the AIDS pandemic. Jerry Cairns was a guy who taught me that at university and um that's remained something that stuck in my head the, the most uh, alongside that there's a guy called alan ingram who did a second year course called state politics and space which was exactly that kind of thing about geopolitics and then i did a fascinating course in my last year uh, called the post-soviet states in transition which i absolutely was fascinated by and loved and remain fascinated by and i've since been able to travel to the Baltic states and to Belarus, which was fascinating. I did a journalistic trip to watch an England match in Kazakhstan. So yeah, they were the things back then that that kind of in, inspired me. And then when I come across when I come across tomes now that interact with my current interest around politics and and uh, current affairs and geography, then I'm fascinated. So funny enough, I've just been listening on the radio on Five Live uh, this morning to Tim Marshall, who I discovered last night, I think you had on this podcast not that long ago, Prisoners of Geography author and former Sky News foreign affairs editor. And that sort of interaction between uh, what I spent many a many an hour reading in dusty libraries and then the reality of, sort of my professional life now are always are always very interesting we've actually got a, another podcast coming with tim marshall on shadow play his, his latest book oh yes which is about the about the balkans i think yeah 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 um geopolitically uh, what do you see as the future issues of the 21st century have you got any inkling or foresight into what we might be up against I think um, this is not an original thought, but I think it, there's an inevitability around the rise of China, isn't there? Um, I think that's, you know, in that sense of the shifting of power eastwards. Uh, so we've seen that in, in the micro, in the news in the last couple of weeks with the domestic row about Huawei and the UK's 5G uh, capabilities and uh, network. But I think the the politics, the geopolitics, uh, the power play surrounding the the rise of China uh, is inevitably in the big picture, the thing that is going to make the world feel very different, I suspect, in a couple of decades from now, from how it felt when I was growing up. I mean, you look at the the rise of China and its contribution to global GDP just in the last 20 years, and it has gone up absolutely hugely. And then you see how it plays into the politics of the relationship between 
Washington and Beijing, uh, London and Beijing, as I say, in the context of things like Huawei, but also, of course, in the context of the the coronavirus, uh, given where it appears it came from uh, in the first place. And then, yeah, and and also China's outlook as far as Africa is concerned, which is a a fascinating one. Um, The politics that surround, you know, the Chinese Communist Party and its outlook on uh, the West and uh, the freedoms that we take for granted and and all the rest of it. So I think there's some fascinating elements there. And also going back to my undergraduate obsession with the post-Soviet states, you know, Russia remains an interesting player, as we've seen in the context of uh, the publication of the the the, uh, the Russia report that the Intelligence Security Committee of Parliament did on the influence of Russia and 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 that fascination where Russia is both strong and weak at the same time. Uh, but yeah, I think the rise of China and the shifting eastwards of power is the big. Uh, macro transition that we are living through with all sorts of consequences and fascinations as far as news stories are concerned and then bigger themes that no doubt the likes of Tim Marshall and others uh, will uh, will pick over. We've talked about your reading on uh, post-Soviet states, uh, the end of history, of course, and uh, shadow play and the prisoners of geography. Can I ask, um, you recently shared a book online called why Can't We All Just Get Along by Ian Dale. Mm. What's on your bedside table for this evening or the weekend? Uh, so I've, uh, I, 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 I'm, I've got a terribly short attention span. So if I can get through a book in one go and relatively quickly, then it's a, it's a definite thumbs up. And, and Ian Dale's book absolutely uh, sort of ticked those boxes. Prior to reading Ian's book, I'd started reading a book by David Lammy, the Labour MP, about tribes. Uh, and, and tribes in the traditional sense, but also tribes in the modern sense, and the sort of human desire to be part of a tribe, whether that be a political one or a sporting one or a national one. And it's it's fascinating around issues around belonging and identity, which again, actually, I suppose my interest in stems back to stems back to my kind of undergraduate days, and actually a dissertation I did about that, those kind of themes in the context of a Yorkshire Dales uh, village. So I'm going to return to David's book. Uh, tribes. That is what is currently. I haven't actually got a bedside table courtesy of my inca- our incapacity to sort our house out since we moved, moved in a couple of years ago. So it's actually on the floor of the bedroom next to the bed um, to give you an accurate geographical description of its location. Uh, but that is what I will be reading when I get home after any questions tonight. By the sounds of it, it might have been converted to a podcast recording room or a play area for the family. <laughs> oh, yeah, completely. <laughs> Every room in this in this new geography of the workplace uh, takes on many job titles in the context of a 24-hour period. Yeah. Um, so wider reading is often cited as a way for students to advance their subject knowledge. Uh, do you have any other trinkets or bits of advice for an A-level geography student? Yeah, I think reading is absolutely key, isn't it? And uh, in the context, yeah, reading and, and asking asking questions. The thing I always say, I say this to, to trainee journalists, but I think it applies to a, an A-level geography student or an A-level student of, of any subject. It's never a weakness to ask a question. Asking a question is a strength, not a weakness. Some people don't like asking questions because they think they'll be felt that they're sort of silly because they don't know the answer you're only silly if you don't know the answer and you don't seek to find out um asking questions is always a good idea and there is there is just no such thing as a stupid question it there just isn't so reading you can never fail to 
sort of improve yourself, improve your outlook, improve your uh, range of knowledge uh, by reading. I'm a massive believer in reading. I'm, I've got a complete tin ear for fiction, actually, which is shameful. I've, I've no, I haven't read a fiction book since one was read to me. Um, but so there's an entire sort of gamut of literature that I'm entirely ignorant of, which I'm not particularly proud of. It's just kind of, I'd just much rather read nonfiction, but I'm obsessed by books and newspapers and magazines and podcasts and all the rest of it. There's this, I think as you get older, you, you learn every day just how ignorant you are about so many things, which then creates a sort of reading list that is never ending. Uh, but yeah, reading and asking questions would be the two things I would, uh, I would recommend. And the, and the power of hard work. That, that's the other thing, again, whether it be in sort of schoolwork or in a professional context or any kind of context, uh, hard work gets you places and hard work makes a difference. And I don't believe in sort of innate talent in anything, really. I just think, uh, you know, different people have the have, have had different opportunities. That's an undoubted reality. But um uh, if you work hard enough and put in the sort of hours of purposeful practice, uh, you can reach a level of uh, kind of expertise in anything I think if you if you put your mind to it it's really important to underscore those home truths about hard work and asking questions it's it's basically encouraging students to have a critical ear I guess yeah it is and then there's another thing which I've discovered since I've had two kids or particularly our eldest who's sort of four and a half and um, what you see when you have a two three four year old or even an 18 month old scampering around the house there's plenty of things you see and there's plenty of things you wish they hadn't done but the one thing that i think is really powerful is that they have an undiminished sense of wonder and what is it about growing up that makes it at some point be uncool to demonstrate a sense of wonder you know when a four-year-old or an 18-month-old stares up at the sky and points out excitedly that there's a plane flying across the sky or there's a squirrel in the tree or the sun's come out from behind the cloud, or there's a ladybird that's landed on a leaf. That is an undiminished and very human sense of wonder. And you would see that in a two, three or four year old anywhere in the world at any point in human history. And yet, and this was the experience of my growing up, and I think this is, I would have thought, pretty much a universal experience. There is something at some point in human nature where it becomes uncool to have that sense of wonder. And I suppose it perhaps best manifests itself in the sort of stereotypical, and I fell into this trap, my goodness, sort of cockiness of the know-all teenager. Um, and um, having holding on to that sense of wonder, that sense of fascination, that willingness to ask questions, that acceptance that the person you're talking to knows stuff that you don't and that you can therefore learn from them, trying to hold on to that and be unashamed about holding on to that i think is is really really important and i don't know what it is as i say that that in so many contexts either as a as a child a young adult or, or a, a grown-up adult sometimes tempts us to almost pretend to know things that we don't uh, which is a complete hiding to nothing so yeah holding on to that sense of wonder um and and the desire to ask questions is so so important and remaining curious of course yeah absolutely yeah yeah finally chris can i just ask what was trimpendence day um and how has your <laughs> life personally changed <laughs> so this is entirely trivial but the great joy of journalism is that you can you can uh, you know in, in one and the same shift uh, have a conversation with somebody you know in the foreign office about geopolitics and the shift of power to the east and at the end of the shift uh, go and have your hair cut live on television as I did 
a couple of weeks ago on the day where it became legal in England to go to a hairdresser again. And so we had talked for a while on the air about this particular day, which just happened to be July the 4th, when barbers could reopen and hairdressers in England, uh, which of course is Independence Day. And uh, somebody on social media called it Trim Dependence Day, which I thought was wonderfully uh, tacky and fun and totally trivial. And I thought, uh, right, well, I think, and I needed a haircut. I hate all the, it's an occupational hazard in television that you have to sort of have at least a passing awareness of how you appear on screen. And I'm some distance from being a slave to fashion. I, uh, I've reluctantly bought some very high-end equipment called a comb since I've been a TV reporter, but I use it reluctantly. And most of the time, if I go to the barbers relatively frequently, I don't need to bother myself with it. But of course, we were all deprived that prospect of the barbers for three months. And DIY home-based haircuts are perhaps not entirely advisable if you're going to go on the television, particularly when you order, as I did, a shaver. And it comes with all of these words like, this is very efficient written on the box. And you're thinking, I'm not sure efficiency is what I want when I don't know what I'm doing. So in the end, I just let my hair grow rather wild. And then I thought, right, let's get it cut once the barber's open, as I guess lots of us did. And I couldn't get an appointment because plenty of people were more organized than me. But then the breakfast television planning desk said, well, if we can find you an appointment, given you've been banging on about your hair for the last few weeks, will you go and get it cut and take a camera with you? And I said, if you can find me an appointment, I'll go along with the camera, thinking "Ah, they won't be able to find one. Anyway, Six o'clock the night before the phone rings. We found you on tomorrow morning, nine o'clock hairdresser in Shoreditch in East London with a camera in tow. So there I was uh, getting my hair cut um, paid for. I paid for it myself, by the way, in case you're, in case you're wondering, because I'd have had to get my hair cut anyway. Um, it did help being a TV reporter because it got me an appointment rather earlier than I suspected. I found one under my own steam. And so, yeah, Trim Dependence Day started with me getting my hair cut on television. It is a truism of broadcast journalism that it is often the more trivial uh, elements of the job that are those that turn out to be memorable and that thing not least in the era of social media where stuff gets clipped up and recycled and watched many times again uh, on various social media platforms uh, it definitely sort of you know ticks ticks that particular box so yes that was trim dependence day my hair was cut and the comb can gather dust again until uh, the next you know big gap between me and a barber's presents itself that's brilliant what fun thank you so much for joining us today chris it's been great to catch up with you and i hope that you make it up to see the beauty of the yorkshire dale soon (laughs) thank you very much i can't wait and it was a pleasure to talk to you thank you thanks for listening if you like this podcast please subscribe to the ask the geographer podcast series on itunes and soundcloud.com be inspired and stay informed with the society's wide range of resources many of which are free School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.